Welcome to Tell Me More, a podcast series featuring distinguished visitors to Tufts University who share their ideas, discuss their work, and shed light on important topics of the day. Nicholas Kristof is a journalist, two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, and longtime columnist for The New York Times. He has written extensively about immigration around the world, critiquing policies, but also telling the stories of the families living with the consequences of those policies. As the son of an immigrant, Kristoff is sympathetic to those looking for a better life in the United States, but also concerned for Americans who have not benefited from immigration. Kristoff spoke at Tufts as part of the Marin Moral Voices series at Tufts Hillel. Here, in a conversation with Julie Flaherty, Kristoff talks about the moral quandaries of immigration, what the world can learn from Canada, and what goes on behind the scenes of some of his most gut-wrenching reporting. Let's listen in. In your reporting, you've met many people who want to come to the United States, either to escape violence or to escape poverty. Are there particular stories that that stick with you when I, when I ask you about that? There was a a family uh, from Honduras that I met a uh, a single mom and her children. And particularly there was a girl named Elena who, when I met her, was 14. They had fled because a gang had threatened to kill them. The gang leader had ordered uh, Elena at age 11 to be his girlfriend. And she had uh, obliged because he had threatened to kill the whole family if she if she had not. And her friend Genesis, uh, who was the same age, had resisted and um, had been raped and shot in the stomach, and nobody was sure if she had survived or not. So Elena, she she cooperated with the gang leader, but then they that was enough. Then they were threatening to kill them, and so her family fled. And um, if I were the mom, I would have fled. If you love your children, you flee. And the idea that we would send people like that back to Honduras, back to that gang, I just find unconscionable. I don't think we can completely open our borders to absolutely uh, everybody. At, uh, and But that doesn't mean that because we can't help everybody, that doesn't mean that we help nobody. And so we have to make some kind of judgment about who we allow in and refugees seem to me to be a um you know people fleeing for their lives and be pretty high on that list can you critique the role that the media has played in how americas view immigration i i know you took the media to task at one point for its coverage of the caravan last fall one reason i write about this issue is that i think historically we in the media haven't done uh, great on this issue that often we have demonized some of the most voiceless, desperate immigrants as they come in and painted them in very threatening terms, uh, not humanized them. That was true of a lot of the early coverage of uh, of Catholics in the 1800s, and uh, it was certainly true of our coverage, uh, our meaning news organizations coverage of uh, Japanese at the and Japanese Americans at the time of the internment and you look back at that coverage and it's just appalling uh, and then uh, the 
coverage of Jewish refugees in the uh, 1930s in particular is horrifying. And I mean, the New York Times had a front page story um, worrying about whether Jewish refugees fleeing Hitler might be uh, actually saboteurs for Hitler or might be communists. And I mean, it seems to me that the coverage today about uh, Muslim immigrants is an echo of that, that, you know, yes, you can never, you can never be sure that you never be a hundred percent sure that every immigrant coming is not going to be a saboteur or a spy. Uh, and that was true, uh, in the 1930s and it was true and it's true today, but, uh, what you can be sure of is that these people are fleeing for their lives. And if one doesn't help that many will die and, um, you can't achieve perfect safety. You have to juggle competing values, and um, and uh, that's what I think we failed to do in the 1930s, and I think it's what we haven't done very well this time around. And and I think we in the media um, let ourselves often be used and manipulated by demagogues who were trying to stir up hate for their own political reasons in ways that proved catastrophic for Japanese Americans, for Jewish refugees, uh, for for Chinese immigrants for a long time with the Chinese Exclusion Acts, for Catholics, or, I mean, just wave, wave after wave after wave. So you, you've said that immigration policy is difficult and complex. Uh, and you said earlier you don't support open borders. But do you see, what do you see as the steps to a solution then? Sure. So, you know, I think this, I think this really is a hard issue. And uh, look, I hugely admired what Angela Merkel did in allowing Syrian refugees in. But I also do worry about two unintended consequences. One, that that led to a wave of people from, frankly, kind of all over the world, from Eritrea to Nigeria, uh, trying desperately to get to Europe, thinking that that was going to be the answer. And you know, many of them went to Libya, for example, thinking they were going to cross the Mediterranean. And many of them suffered appallingly in that journey and died in that journey. So uh, I fear that one unintended consequence of assistance is leading more people to make a really dangerous journey. And in Angela Merkel's case, the other consequence was she hugely and she ended up hugely empowering far-right uh, racist forces uh, across Europe and and I think was probably one factor in, in Brexit. So what does one do? I mean, you can't – you have to show compassion. You have to show support. On the other hand, there is a risk of empowering crazies and racists and leading people to make a, a dangerous journey. So I think that uh, – I think we have to admit – refugees. Um, but I think that we can do more in two areas. One is that uh, the neighboring countries are always the ones that host the great, great majority of people. And so in the case of Syrian refugees, most were hosted in uh, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. And we could have provided much, much more assistance to um, to those families in those neighboring countries uh, where it's an awful lot cheaper to educate a refugee than it is to take one refugee in, in the U.S. Uh, 
I think that in the case of Central America, we can also do an awful lot more to help stabilize those countries. There have been some really quite effective programs in both Honduras and El Salvador in improving governance and undermining the gangs there that force people out. And look, there will still be a huge uh, gap, a huge wage differential that will tend to drive people north. There will still be differences in opportunities, but we can do something about people fleeing uh, murderous gangs. And it's it's not perfect. It's difficult. But some of the programs actually were both very cheap and uh, really quite surprisingly effective. And I I wish that we would invest more in in those and in supporting refugees in neighboring countries. Likewise, in Central America. So historically, when Guatemalans got in trouble, for example, then they would cross the border into Mexico, into southern Mexico, and stay there. And uh, in the 1980s, there were vast numbers of Central Americans who took refuge in southern Mexico. And then, really, the United States became concerned that if there were all these Guatemalans in in uh, Mexico, then they might eventually go north and enter the U.S. And so we put pressure on Mexico to no longer be a haven. And as a result, Mexico began to push people out. And that made, I think, Central Americans more inclined not to stop in Mexico, but to head north. And so I think some of what we did was really a, a moral mistake, but also a practical mistake. Yeah, I, I remember that you sort of took Obama to task for um, the work they were we were doing with Mexico to sort of prevent. That's right. I, there. Yeah, I mean, there. This is an area where I mean, I'm these days I'm uh, you know very critical of, of President Trump, but uh, President Obama was not great on refugees and immigrants, and uh, in particular, I found it just appalling that he was pushing. Mexico to send back Hondurans to be killed back in Honduras. Should we talk about Canada? (laughs) I know that you've, uh, let's see, what did you call them? A moral leader of the free world when it comes to uh, some of these questions. Do do you want to tell us a little about why that is? Sure. You know, what I find interesting about Canada is that historically Canada was about as xenophobic as any other random country. And through um, the 1950s, Canada had a, had a white Canada policy. It did not want to let in people of color who were immigrants. And then beginning in the late 50s and early 1960s under a number of prime ministers, but Pierre Elliott Trudeau was certainly one of the important ones, they really saw that Canada needed to diversify and get more immigrants uh, for re- for economic reasons. And so they began to open the doors and they changed the ethos of Canada so that Canada became began to define itself in terms of a land that was open to immigrants. And so what really struck me during the Syrian crisis was that all around the world, political leaders were getting uh, bashed for admitting tiny amounts, tiny numbers of Syrian refugees. And President Obama was getting savaged for admitting uh, 10,000 Syrian refugees. Meanwhile, uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, Justin Trudeau in Canada, uh, admitted 30,000, went to the airport and uh, handed out winter jackets to these Syrian refugees as they arrived. And 
he gained politically by doing this. This was a case where a political leader used his political capital to do the right thing, but also benefited from it by arguing that we are not like these other countries, that we we do help. And uh, it Canada was kind of the only place that managed to uh, where a political leader managed both to put himself out there like that and to benefit politically by by doing so. But it it almost seems like here in the U.S., if if you're a politician, you have to either be for the wall or for open borders. We're, we're getting pushed further apart. Is that true? Yeah. I think it's sort of unfortunate that everything is so politicized that the people that it's harder to kind of look ad hoc at at policies. Um, for example, in I mean, I, I think President Trump has been a complete demagogue on immigration issues uh, in general. But there are a couple of things that he has to say on immigration that I think probably make sense. One is that um, uh, immigrate that guaranteeing citizenship to everyone born in the U.S. seems to me not a policy that necessarily makes a lot of sense in the 21st century. Uh, many other countries around the world do not uh, do not offer that. We had uh, children born, one in Tokyo, one in Hong Kong, neither got citizenship. Um, and I'm not sure it particularly makes sense to create incentives to have pregnant women come to your country to give birth uh, in that country. Um, and so I'm sympathetic to President Trump's argument on, on that front. Likewise, uh, he has talked about uh, having, bringing in less unskilled uh, labor and more highly skilled uh, labor as Canada does. And I think that likewise is a tweak that probably makes sense. The present immigration system based on quotas and and uh, and, and countries and not taking into account um, skill was really a sop to Irish immigration back in the early 1960s and hasn't really been rethought since. And I think Canada actually does it more intelligently when they look at what skills they need and uh, help build the economy as a result. You're here to speak at Tufts as part of the Marin Moral Voices program. And your voice has often been a call to humanitarian action. And I'll just mention you won your second Pulitzer for your coverage of genocide in Darfur. So let's talk about morality and immigration. Um, can someone be a moral person and still be concerned that the U.S. is letting in too many people? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, and frankly, one of the things that I worry about is that progressives, while justifiably concerned about um anti about Islamophobia or about anti-immigrant uh, xenophobia that then they turn and become um, kind of anti-working class uh, and and denounce working class Americans who are concerned about immigrants. And there's been a lot of academic research on the impact of immigration on the U.S. And I'd say that there's some disagreement, but in general, I think the consensus is that immigration as a whole has benefited the U.S. and has certainly benefited more affluent Americans. If you were a high school dropout, though, you may well have been hurt by uh, immigration, and you were now competing 
against a lot of folks who, you know, uh, depress wages for the bottom tier. Um, since 1980, uh, the incomes for people who only have a high school degree or who don't have a high school degree um, have stayed steady and their assets have actually gone down and their life expectancy is going down. I mean, this is a pretty desperate group, the white working class Americans, especially men. And I think immigration may well be a factor in this. And, you know, I don't think the solution is to bar immigration, bar refugees, and I don't think it's to demonize immigrants. But I think it is fair to wonder how the gains of immigration can be more fairly shared and... Um, you know, affluent Americans benefit enormously by having uh, cheaper people to look after their kids and to uh, help with various labor tasks around their their home. Uh, working class Americans have have not benefited, and I, I'm troubled sometimes that the progressive impulse, especially after President Trump's election, has been to pivot and denounce some of <laughs> some people who've been pretty marginalized within this country. Now, you, you grew up in an area where these sort of issues affected people. You grew up on a farm, um, a cherry farm, timber farm, sheep farm. Yeah, cherry and sheep and timber, yeah. <laughs> um, and to go back to your, to your father, um, uh, how did a, a boy who grew up on a farm like that come to be a foreign correspondent? And was he an, an influence on, on why you wanted to go out and, and see the world and report on the world? Yeah. So my parents um, were, you know, extremely educated and, uh, but they, they settled in Yamhill, Oregon, which was really beyond the commuting distance. They, they worked in Portland, but that was really beyond the, the normal commuting distance. So Almost everybody else in Yamhill was not commuting, and it was basically a farming community dependent on timber, light manufacturing, uh, and, and agriculture. And so my hometown has been uh, pretty brutally hit by lost working class jobs, and I have an awful lot of friends who have died from um, drugs, uh, you know, obesity, reckless accidents. Uh, when I look at the declining life expectancy for uh, white working class Americans, that's my hometown. Those are the kids on my school bus. And uh, and they are indeed, you know, strong Trump supporters, um, I think is kind of a primal scream for help. You know, people periodically ask, you know, how is it that everybody else in your town or so many other people are struggling with meth and joblessness and early death and you know you're doing well and it was completely my parents and their education that I grew up confident knowing that I was going to go to college and uh, there were a lot of people who I grew up with who knew that they would never go to college and um, the best predictor of outcomes is uh, is has essentially been your education I had a, uh, a friend uh, named Clayton, who was very talented and very smart. And uh, he was kicked out of school in the ninth grade. And uh, he he just died a month ago. Um, and, you know, he 
he died of heart failure, but in, in many ways, it was he died of educational failure. If you were a high school dropout um, in the 1970s, you were essentially cooked. And even right now, one in seven Americans doesn't graduate from high school. One in seven. You know, we gradu- we were number one in the world in high school graduation in the, in the 1960s. Now we rank number 61. This is a huge failure that means that these kids failing to graduate today they're, they're sunk for decades and decades to come. One of your columns was a look back at your least read columns of the year, um, which was a strangely fun column. But um, most of them, most of the duds, I guess, as it were, were about international issues. Um, and you said human rights and humanitarian topics often get fewer online reads, at least. Um, so does it frustrate you when you go through, you know, you risk your neck sometimes going to places to cover these stories. It is so frustrating. Americans don't care. It is so frustrating. You know, um, South Sudan has been a issue that I've been to, you know, that I've covered a lot, that I've been to many times. It has suffered a brutal, brutal uh, war that I have taken some risk to cover. And, you know, I go there, I am terrified the whole time that I'm off you know, in walking through marshes trying to interview survivors of massacres. And then uh, I write my piece and nobody reads it. And then uh, my next piece is some piece uh, denouncing Trump, which I can pretty much write by hitting my F6 key. And and then, you know, the readership is through the roof and everybody is telling me, oh, amazing column on Trump. And it is, um, yeah, that's frustrating. My last fall, I had two columns uh, back to back uh, and one one on the war in Yemen, um, which I think desperately needs more attention, and the other on um, uh, the Supreme Court fight. And again, the you know, it wasn't just that 30% more people read the political column. It wasn't that even twice as many. As I recall, it was four times as many mm-hmm. read the political column, which, again, you know, I kind of whipped out. Whereas Yemen, um, I, you know, I traveled to Yemen. Uh, it's enormously difficult to get there. You can get bombed at any time. I was worried about kidnapping. It was expensive for the times. And I'm at a stage in my career where, you know, look, I, if nobody reads the column except my mother, then, you know, it doesn't bother me so much. But but if I were a young reporter trying to make my name and trying to build a career, then it would not make sense to cover those human rights or humanitarian issues. Uh, they just don't have the same readership. And I find that really troubling. So to wrap up, could you tell us something that most people might not know about you? One of the challenges in reporting is that especially if I'm traveling abroad in some kind of a of a conflict area, then you you know you know that by writing about it, you're helping people in some kind of broad general way. But then you come across a kid who needs urgent medical care, and that kid is going to be dead by the time your column appears. It's not really very helpful to say, "Oh, my column will help people like you." And so one of the questions that I always run into is to what extent do I use my vehicle, my resources to help people who are right in front of me? And 
And there's no perfect answer to that because I, you know, there are a million people who need help and I've got to focus on my reporting. But I do periodically, I sort of acquired a certain numbness and a protective shield, but people break through that periodically, especially kids. And so I do use my vehicle to go take them off to a clinic or pay for medical care or in one case uh, gave blood because somebody needed blood to survive Uh, and it's um, trying to navigate that issue of not only one's professional responsibilities but also one's personal responsibilities to people that I come across is uh, I think a side of reporting that people often don't realize it's going on out there as well. What do you do when you come home and you've reported on? Oh, I hug my kids. Truly. <laughs> I hug my kids. Yeah. You know, it. I remember one, one time uh, I just come back from Darfur. This is years ago. And my editor uh, said uh, that, that we, uh, she, she had meetings with the columnists and she was basically saying we've had a really tough year and there are going to be no, uh, uh, no pay increases for next year. And I was like, who cares? As long as you don't take my kids and throw them into bonfires in front of me, I'm happy. And it just truly, you know, it gives you some measure of perspective to see what things people go through and survive. And it puts our own difficulties and complaints in some perspective. And so I just feel, you know, so lucky that I won the lottery of birth and that I have these, you know, this family and that I live in a place that is safe. Uh, and, uh, it, um, that, that is what I, I bring back. And the idea that when you win the lottery of birth, you also have some obligation to give back. Nicholas Kristoff, thank you so much for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And to be the first to hear about new episodes, please follow Tufts University on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd also welcome your thoughts on the series. You can reach us at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Tell Me More is produced by Stefan Hacker, Anna Miller, Dave Nusher, and Katie McLeod Strollo. This episode was edited by 5 to 9 Media and Anna Miller. Julie Flaherty wrote the introduction to this episode. Web production and editing support was provided by Taylor McNeil. Special thanks to Lauren Bloom and Tufts Hillel. Our theme music is sourced from DeWolf Music. And my name is Patrick Collins. Until next time, be well. Be well.